Welcome to Lost in Transformation. This is Ming Labs, podcasting from Singapore, an international innovation center, business hub, and startup supporter. Learn from digital thought leaders and designers about innovation and transformation of businesses in an ever-evolving digital world. Coming up is your host, Sebastian Müller, COO of Ming Labs, with our guest for today, Hai Kakabian. He is a business expert and advisor in areas of innovation, strategy, AI, and blockchain. He is a regular speaker who presented at TEDx, Chaos Asia, and Blockchain Economic Forum. Haik held senior roles of digital transformation around the world, having worked with SMEs and MNCs across Europe, Africa, and Asia. Currently, he is the business development manager at Nexmo, a partner at Vision Capital, an expert in residence at SOSV, and an APEC partner at Prism Group. In this episode, learn about implementing digital transformation processes in companies, about cultural challenges and key trends in the field of technology. We hope you enjoy the conversation and look forward to your feedback. So, Haik, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Sebastian, for your time and uh, thanks for having me. This could be a very exciting conversation. Yeah, let's see where it goes. <laughs> I mean, you've been doing a lot of different things uh, in your life so far, switching between different fields. Maybe you first start by telling us a little bit, what have you actually been doing the last few years? Where, where did it all start for you? Why did you end up in Singapore? Okay. Yeah, so, well, I think the underlying logic of everything I've done is because I like to either do something that has an impact on a business or professional level as well as on personal. So I think maybe the underlying rational or logic is that I like to either do something that impacts or I like to help someone to do something that impacts people and businesses. So that's the common denominator of everything I've done. So why I ended up in Singapore, I think my story is that I studied in Europe. Well, I studied physics then I studied business in Europe. And then once I was about to finish my studies, I thought, well, Africa is the kind of place that I would like to go. Initially, I thought to go to Egypt because I wanted to learn Arabic. And then once I was there, I thought it's the land of opportunities because there's so many things you can do yeah. in Egypt as well as in most of Africa. You can never even think of doing in any more developed places. And I like to go to places where there are opportunities, not that much the comfort, the living standards, but more the opportunities. So I went there. I didn't learn Arabic the first few months that I was supposed to learn, but luckily enough, I ended up staying there and for four years. So, I mean, imagine I actually went to Egypt for two months only as a language school. I ended up staying four and a half years. Right. Um, I still learned Arabic, except I didn't envision I'm going to learn it by working and by, in a way, a forced way of learning the language. So, and then when revolution happened in 2011, I moved to Mozambique. Why Mozambique? Because, well, I mean, it's very rational. Now you'll see. So I like to climb. I climbed Mont Blanc and a few other bigger peaks. And uh, so in Africa, there's Kilimanjaro, which is the biggest. Yeah. And well, it just happens to be in Tanzania. So I didn't want to go to Tanzania because I thought, well, Tanzania, they speak Swahili, which is 60% Arabic. There's a bit of German, a bit of Portuguese, a bit of local. So I said, I speak or could speak potentially all except Portuguese. And then I looked at the neighbor. So I wanted to go to neighboring country. This is really my thought process. I'm like, where can I go from where I can travel to Tanzania to climb the mountain? 
So I thought every other neighboring country, they either speak English or French, which I already speak. Yeah. And I said, ah, oh, Mozambique. They don't, they speak Portuguese. I don't speak that one, but similar to French. So I found a, a job there, a consulting job. And then that's how I ended up in Mozambique. The, the whole reason being you wanted to climb Kilimanjaro. And yeah, the best part is I didn't realize that the capital of Mozambique, Maputo, is at the very south of Mozambique. So to give you an idea, at the very south of Mozambique, so Tanzania is the northern neighbor. If you're traveling by airplane from Maputo to, let's say, Dar es Salaam, the capital of Tanzania, that's around seven hours, of which five hours is over Mozambique itself. So I was potentially at the most, like, furthest point from Tanzania, but still in Mozambique that I could be. And I could never take a train or bus, which is what I initially thought. Right. I did, however, climb Kilimanjaro eventually. <laughs> so it's a bit, yeah, it's it went in a very roundabout way. But anyway, I eventually ended up climbing there. So again, I worked in Egypt in companies that initially at the biggest professional services company. So they were providing consulting and advisory services to multinationals. So helping some other companies, that's the, my rationale, right? Then in Mozambique, eventually I also ended up working for the biggest opposition media, also helping empowering and impacting lives of people. My sort of travels or work in Africa came to a temporary uh, suspension when South Africa introduced transit visa systems. So I was traveling from Dubai back to Mozambique, where I still had a job, had a girlfriend, all my luggage and all my life is there. And I couldn't go because suddenly in Johannesburg, they wanted me to have a transit visa, which I didn't. Right. So they shipped me to uh, Tanzania again. And then I figured I'll need a bit more than just a visa on arrival to go back to Mozambique. So I thought, well, why don't I go back to my home base in Africa, which is Egypt. And from there, I eventually got connected to, I had a friend who was working in Singapore for 20 years, a successful entrepreneur. He married an Egyptian lady, moved to Egypt. So then he said, well, why don't you go that side of the world? I mean, I'm making it sound a bit like a, a bit of a fairy tale, but this is how it went, actually. So he connected me to some people in Singapore. I came for 10 days. In 10 days, I met five, six people. Yeah. And then six months down the road, when I was back in Egypt, I thought, well, revolution isn't getting any better in terms of economy. Economy was bad. I wasn't getting a visa. I think right. that helped as well. I've been already four and a half years in Egypt. So I figure after 15 Egyptian visas, maybe I should leave because they won't give me any more visa and I can't get a job because I'm a foreigner and I can't do my own thing because I'm, well, the situation is not really that good in terms of like starting something at that time. Yeah. So, yeah, then I, of the five, six people I met, I reached out. I said, anyone needs a senior biz dev or something? One of them said, sure, come over for an interview. I said, pay me a ticket. I'll come. I said, okay, let's do a Skype interview. I did a Skype interview. I passed. They did my work pass and voila, here I am. That's the long, short story of how I came to Singapore. How long have you been here now? Uh, almost five years. So... What I've done is the same thing, right? So I ended up working for companies that provide specific type of services for bigger companies. So I always end up either in a very big company to give something to the big company, another big company, or a smaller company that does something for a much bigger company. It's always that. And then through that big company, it goes all the way to retail, right? So last few years I've been in, well, I've done a few things. I haven't started anything yet in Singapore, but I've, Worked now two plus years in Nexmo. Mm -hmm. 
It's the biggest in Asia in terms of telco capabilities, and it's well number two in the world. Before that, I was, uh, and I think that's where a lot of your questions are going to come through. Before that, I was basically part of Yellow Pages. Uh, the story there is actually interesting. Maybe I'll just go to segue to that. So I was working for a big Chinese company uh, in Singapore. I was leaving that company, and by complete coincidence or serendipity, one of my friends met me, and I told her that I'm going to leave this company. And she said, well, do you like challenging opportunities? I said, challenging opportunity. My Chinese company was very challenging. I mean, my boss didn't speak in English. I had to pick up some Chinese. He still is. He's a very highly connected guy in China. His dad was a close friend of Mao Zedong, so he had connections. Province heads, uh, uh, Rothschild Bank, that kind of connections that yeah. not even Google has, or maybe they do, I don't know. So I didn't think that it can get any more challenging than this job. <laughs> <laughs> So she said, no, but you should talk to my dad. I said, who is your dad? She said, my dad is the Yellow Pages CEO. I said, oh, okay, sure. Let's have a meet with your daddy. I mean, yeah. So we met. I was told that Yellow Pages has been since a few years, five, six years, trying to turn around, become more relevant, and that they were unable to, and they were looking for someone who can. So I said, well, I've never done it digital turnaround or business turnaround, especially with a public company. So again, after some conversations, et cetera, CEO was okay to let me meet the board. Mm-hmm. And that was my second interview. So he said, you should present your ideas to the board. Whatever we talked here in this interview, you presented to the board. If they like what you said, then you can take this. And that's what I did. So I put everything in a PowerPoint format and I pitched to their board. Not all of them were there, but he spent only like a few days to convey, basically, in a very short notice. Right. And yeah, the rest is basically I took charge of the company's, well, pretty much all operations except the core printing. I was given a carte blanche to do anything I want. Um, well, And I did. I started a new digital business unit, stuffed it with some people from the other departments, recruited, rehauled all the product line. So what was the, 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 the core product. business at the time when you came in? Is it was it the the printed catalog that we all imagine when we hear yellow pages? No, so you would be so this is what yellow pages is or was known for. Except the point is I don't think they would be able to answer was the core. Uh, they could answer was the core in terms of the chunk of revenue coming from this and that. But if you ask yes. me, so this is actually a very interesting point because when I went there, there were more than 30 print publications and more than 40 digital products that no one has ever heard of. So when I heard this, I said, so you have all this. Okay, can we have a breakdown of products by profit and then by revenue? Let's see what generates. Surprise, surprise, they didn't have a product breakdown by profit. They could have by revenue, like on overall. But basically, they had really little idea which product was making profit. So they had all this revenue. And this was the first year in history of Yellow Pages when they were in the red, so they were losing money. So this was even more than ever relevant for them to figure their act together or get their act together. So there was no cost attribution to these no. products? So the CFO, interestingly, was from for his former PwC, uh, well, I don't know what his title was, I don't remember, but he was not junior, mid to senior level. Yeah. So when I had an initial chat with him about this, He told me an argument I still remember because it's pretty shocking at the time to hear something like that. He said, well, you know, costs are distributed. I said, 
if you produce a chair, it's going to be a distributed cost. But I think there is a way of doing this. Can I help you do the digital product? I'll have a PL for each of your digital products. Right. Yeah. So we didn't have that. So my first two weeks were basically I slashed, I think, two, three products. We had a big contract with a Canadian uh, software company that were supposed to white label and provide to SMEs in Singapore. I, I mean, they spent one year and one of the board of directors was involved. I think my second meeting, I was one week in a company, my second meeting into that project, I slashed it. I said, let's do a quick survey. Yeah. Let's ask, not even a statistically significant sample, but let's ask 50, 60 SMEs, would they want something like this? It's simple test. It's not, we don't have time for a big significant test, but let's just ask some few dozen. So they did. One week after, we had the result. Out of, I think, 52 or so they asked, only two wanted this product. <laughs> Everyone else wanted to delegate this to Yellow Pages, yeah. which is what I had a hunch about. I'm like, no, I don't think they care. They want to take care of it. It was an advertising platform. So imagine an SME, they have to have a fully fledged dashboard and all their Googles and Facebooks. I mean, how many SMEs do you know that are going to have, firstly, this kind of talent or resource or like time or even financials? They just want to pay someone to do it for them. Right. Which is what I assumed, and I was right. But I didn't have a proof, and they didn't have a proof. So we did a little test. And, and nobody before ever bothered to ask the customer? No, no one. Uh, the head of product at the time was this guy who was very technical. And I thought, well, his argument was, this is great tech, and it works in Yellow Pages Canada. I said, Yellow Pages Canada is five years ahead of Yellow Pages anywhere. It works there because they have a mature market. It's a mature company. The SMEs are at the level where they can take and do, but we don't. Right. So, yeah, so you can imagine I immediately made a lot of friends when I did this. <laughs> Another thing is my title was head of business development. There is a story behind it. So when I first came, my first day, the CEO introduced me to the VPs. He said, so we can't call you head of business transformation because no one is going to work with you. Let's call you something more friendly. <laughs> what about business development? Everyone likes business development. I said, I Okay, but I don't think they're still going to work with me either way. But okay, let's let's give me a better chance or better shot, right, right, if you like. So, yeah, I would go and I would present myself. Head of business development, initially all the C-levels or VPs would be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then five minutes in the conversation. So you can see immediately they get defensive because I'm questioning their product, their budget, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, that's where I was. I didn't have any blueprint. Uh, I mean, business turnaround is not exactly like you can get it at an MBA course. So I took um, a book, which I, by pure serendipity or coincidence, I was reading uh, called Brick by Brick. So Brick by Brick is the turnaround story of Lego. Yeah. And it turned out there were more than one similarity between Yellow Pages in Singapore and Lego, which is in Denmark. For example, that breakdown of products by profit was exactly one of the things they didn't have at the time when their turnaround guy came to help them. And there were a lot of other similarities that, so that became sort of my blueprint. I literally took literally pages and pages and started like <laughs> following and implementing the local version of what the message was or what the idea was. And that's how it happened. Lego took around three years yeah. to go from, also for Lego was the first year in 2004 when, when they were losing money. So ironically, again, I think this could be interesting for you is that in 1998, Lego was about to go, not go down, but they started not going, growing as fast as they can. And they brought in this business turnaround expert, so to speak, so-called. He introduced a lot of new products. The revenue started growing, not even exponentially, like this. So a bit more than linearly. 
but a bit less than linearly, but was growing. But the problem was that by 2004, so in six years, they increased revenue, but it turns out that in six years, there was the first year in 2004 that they, their profit went down and went like zero in 2004. Yeah. So despite increasing revenue, profit was going down, which was counterintuitive. Problem was that turnaround expert that they had, he had no idea he had to do this kind of breakdown either. And when they brought in the new CFO, that's the CFO that said, no, this is not acceptable. They fired the transformation expert and they promoted what was a former head of strategy to be the co-CEO or interim CEO. And he's still the CEO, Jürgen von Knotzdorf, I think, if I pronounce his name. So he was at the time 36, former McKinsey. The guy spent one year in a kindergarten. He has a PhD in something and he spent one year in the kindergarten observing and dealing with kids. So it's this kind of guy. It's a very interesting guy. Sounds like a relevant background. Really yeah, relevant. it sounds very relevant to me, except the kindergarten part. <laughs> yeah, so he came and it's the same thing. He was very new, two years in Lego. I was completely new. Yeah. He had to deal with everyone who has been in Lego 30 to 40 years. Same for me. I came and they were like my grandma and my mom age of people. There was one lady that, that has been 43 years with Yellow Pages. She was in the print department and she was probably, I think, 70-ish already. But yeah, there were people like this. Everyone was my parents' age. Some people were close to my grandparents' age, the sea levels. All were Singaporean Chinese. Uh, you, right. you probably know. No, no, there's no buts. But every, so there is a bit of, a, especially older generation, there is still a bit of racism. Not racism, but they don't feel comfortable next to a white guy, never mind where I'm from. So anyway, I had to deal with a lot of prejudice. Who is this kid who is telling us what to do? He doesn't understand anything about our business. He doesn't know that this doesn't work. I mean, I had to deal with small things like you can't change the title of your employee all the way to the product line that you are talking about. The product that you're talking about is not impossible to introduce. Or you're, you can't have your employees in Philippines because it's Yellow Pages in Singapore. So I had to basically break a lot of their stereotypes. Right. That did make me a lot of friends, but the digital business unit that we created, we ran it like Google, basically. So I also read a book called uh, Work Rules by Laszlo Bok, who is the VP of People's Operations at Google. So he has a book, whether in reality Google has a lot of that in reality, especially in this region or not, that's beyond the point because I don't think they do. But book has a lot of very interesting insights because Laszlo Bok is not a typical HR. Yeah. So I took that in my recruitment on team growing sort of... Uh, as a blueprint, and then I took brick by brick as an overall strategic sort of a business turnaround uh, blueprint. And I just went with this two, and our unit grew very fast. So in nine months, uh, we went from, well, so Yellow Pages overall went from zero to we started growing in revenue again. Mm -hmm. So we had to restructure sales, we had to train them, we had to bring in partners. I mean, we did a lot of things that were, for me, unprecedented. I've never, I only read it in a book. Right. But we introduced it. There were a lot of good results. We outsourced even part of our team to Philippines. We had project manager and a few other people working in Philippines, which was unheard of. So we did pretty well. And uh, along the way, we failed to get acquired two times. Once by a big New Zealandese digital agency. And second time, the most notorious, which what Singaporeans would know, is My Republic. My Republic wanted to acquire us. So Interesting. the acquisition talks went for two, three months because of that. So it was me, the CFO, the CEO, and the other VP of print, and four of us mostly involved. So I got to meet all of the My Republic, all the C-levels, very interesting conversations we had with them. 
The reason why it didn't happen is because they wanted to only eventually acquire the digital business unit which I was heading. Yeah. Yellow Pages at the time had interests and investments in uh, Wendy's, which is this regional hot dog and ice cream chain. You know Wendy's? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it was master franchiser of Wendy's. Also had few malls like Pakaranga Mall in Auckland and New Zealand. So, so basically a lot of real estate and food investments in the region. Right. Which, and there's a listed company on SGA. So my republic was reluctant to take on all these other assets that are sort of secondary or non-essential. And the deal broke down because we CEO couldn't just give away the digital business unit. So yeah, and then one year, a few months down the road, I had a talk with the CEO. I mean, again, I'm making it short, but you can ask all the follow-up questions. So this was already next quarter after we started again growing in terms of sales. We were no longer losing money. So he said, I need to see a holistic growth, which is what everyone wants. I said, look, Stanley, you pick one end of the stick, you, you pick the other. You cannot expect me to do a business turnaround in one year. Even Lego, which is my blueprint, didn't do it in one year. Right. It's usually a few years and it takes a lot of restructuring, a lot of things. I did in nine months, bring back the revenue. I need another six months for the team to actually show you a more significant kind of growth that you would like to see. So all I need is time. He said, we don't have time. It's a public company, etc. shareholder pressure, da, 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 da. I said, well, if you, we don't have time, then I'm going to leave. Again, just stay here, sit back and uh, see you do whatever you want. And that's what happened. I just told him that I'll leave if he doesn't give me the time. And I did. What happened after my uh, leaving was that he merged the digital business unit, which was, a bit, I guess, by then the most lucrative part of this whole company, into um, another person's uh, company. So this person's name is Fabian Lim, and the company was called Page Advisor. Mm-hmm. It's this mobile app where you can find some SME services, but something that I wouldn't approve of, approved of because their company's name was brought in early on when I was like a few months in Yellow Pages, and we thought, we did a due diligence, we didn't think it's going to work out. Yep. So now after I left, ironically enough, the guy, uh, because Stanley probably clicked with the founder who has similar mentality, Stanley is the CEO of Yellow Pages. And that's how it happened. Unfortunately, as I learned recently and sort of had again a hunch about that relationship didn't work out and Fabian Lim was pretty much dismissed. Okay. Yeah. So now they are back to so to speak, square one, they have a new CEO. One of the directors is the chairman and Yellow Pages, the part digital business unit now spun out completely of the main Yellow Pages, which is now renamed into Yellow Pages Properties. And that's the one that's still listed on SGX. So now that chairman is running the show with a new CEO and now they are trying to basically resume where they left when before Fabian Lim came in. Yeah. That's the, sorry, I went on and on, but that's sort of the story now. That was a very interesting story and a a lot to unpack there. So maybe also tell us a little bit about what what kind of manpower did you actually have when you came in and then over time, how did you grow that? So we didn't really have much of, let's say, groups. Uh, So because at the time when I came, Yellow Pages didn't have like different business units. There were a few guys who were working on websites for SMEs, few yeah. that were doing Google advertising, and that's what we had. That so there was the digital talent. That's the that's the digital talent. So a few guys. There is no system, no project management system or anything. It was first in, first out, or any like it was very random. Yeah. 
So we came in, I came in, I introduced, I created a subunit called product, recruited someone from outside to be in the product, brought in a few technical guys to be the developers or developer coordinators in the product, created a subunit called web, again, stuffed it and sort of structured and systematized that. So we had web, advertising and product. Product was our own product. Advertising was the Google and Facebook eventually that we introduced. And web was the websites that we were creating for the SMEs. Mm-hmm. So there's three units. So product was in charge of the internet yellow pages and basically any internal yellow pages products. And yeah, so I mean, a funny story was that, so one of the girls who was there who was doing basically Google advertising for SMEs. Yeah. So her title was assistant product manager. So when I talked to her, because I have to talk to my existing assets or resources, I said, so what product are you managing? She said, I'm just doing Google advertising. I said, then you are a digital marketing executive or manager at best. Yeah. Uh, what's the assistant part? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so I went to the HR. I said, I need to change your title. It's wrong title. She said, you cannot change it because you have to have the CEO's approval. I said, I'm not going to have the CEO's. I'm the last stop in terms of decision making and you have to change it. And then she said, well, it's unionized. So you have to get this paper, that paper, that paper. I said, let's just have an internal paper, pass it to her. Everyone will call her digital marketing. I don't want to get involved with the union here. (laughs) So anyway, I had a lot of these kind of smaller and bigger battles that I had to fight. But we structured three groups, this product, web, and, and advertising, introduced systems and processes for each of them, KPIs for each of them, brought the whole organization into Google, this was a breakthrough. You would think Google is a given, no. They were using Microsoft because Microsoft was a partner. And when I brought in Google, the IT head told me, but what about Google's security? We are, we have to be really sorry about it. I said, what about Microsoft's? Because <laughs> I used to be an IT specialist at the time. Right. Internet Explorer or any of the web servers of Microsoft are known to be like Swiss cheese. There's a lot of holes. It's like known. If you don't know even anything about anything, but know a bit about security, you know, Microsoft is is not at all secure. I don't know now, but I don't think it's that much more secure than before. So when she said this, I smiled. I said, are we comparing Microsoft as a, like a benchmark of security? Because I, I will take this as a joke, but not any. Anyway, uh, she said, but the company policy, it's public company. I said, with all due respect, it's my purview here. I'm going to go with Google. Right. So we went with Google. She can, I mean, she had a dotted line reporting to me, so she, she couldn't do anything about it. So then we introduced all the usual tools. We would have objective and key results meetings every Monday. So it went, it literally ran as Google. And that's why we managed in a very short time to not only sort of focus on the main products and sort of retreat from products that were not profitable, we're not strong yet, and just doesn't make sense for us to do. We brought in a partner to do ERP solutions, white-labeled ERP solutions, the CRM, the HR, whatever for SMEs, because we did a little bit of serving turnout. Also, this was something that was really in demand and it was costly. So whatever that was in market was costly. We brought in someone who was doing it for very cheap. So basically, just go look at the data, see what data tells you, combine that with a bit of customer, like what they say, and then combine that with some trends, these three sources, right? Data customer feedback and trends, and then you come up with, okay, well, here's the, what the product should look like. And then we would, of course, launch it on a, on a test basis and see what's the reception and then fully offer it. And also, I guess a telling sign is that the product team, we were contracting a Vietnamese house for the most of the backend development product team started running in sprints. So yeah. we 
basically introduced agile development for the first time in Yellow Pages. I guess everything was first, first time. Google, first time. Agile, having processes the first time. So yeah, there's a lot of, lot of stuff that we changed. Uh, we revamped the logo. I mean, we went all in. The only place we haven't changed the logo was the building because it was like $50,000. <laughs> so we took out the paper from yeah. beneath the walking fingers. Yeah, we had to completely rehaul everything because we wanted this fresh, new, digital, relevant thing for SMEs. And that's what we did. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned decision-making based on, on data. Yeah. What kind of data did you actually have when you came in? Was so, there structured systems? Was there no sort of data lake? Yeah, it's a very, very good point because Yellow Pages is stereotypically thought of sitting on a lot of data. But you're right. There was so much of Firstly, out-of-date data. So there's a lot of siloed, not synced, out-of-date, and in some cases, completely useless data, like telephone numbers. What do I need telephone numbers? I don't have a name or any other information piece right. attached to it. So we started, luckily, we still had, for example, the Internet Yellow Pages or the Yellow Pages portal was there. So we could track, for example, a lot of behaviors of users. So we started basically introduced few I forgot what was the name of the software. We introduced something that could collect, for example, the moment you're on the website, what do you go, what do you click on and stuff. So we actually started collecting what we thought was useful data. Yeah. And then the rest of it was basically, I mean, we looked at some of the data we had, most of it we thought was useless or re required a lot of work to make something out of. Uh, we had CRM data. So every time, so SME sales. So when you go, you sell to an SME, what product you sell, we had all that data that mm -hmm. was useful. So SME data, portal data, and a lot of us just going out and talking and doing surveys and interviews was the data that we had. Otherwise, all that million data points or so were, I mean, to be very frank with you, most of them were not either relevant or useful. Right. So yeah, we went, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest shifts in our way of doing things was that mentality shift that you go from being an assumption or technology-oriented company to more being data and customer oriented company. Instead of you assuming it's a cool technology and everyone has to happily jump on you on it just like you did, should see actually what's in it for the SMEs, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about what you call get things or jobs done or what's in it for them, right? It has to solve something or it has to do something for an SME. Absolutely. And uh, just assuming it's something good. I mean, for me, it's common sense, but apparently for a big company, public company, that wasn't common sense at all. A lot of very smart people were involved wasn't common sense for them. Yeah. And then I come in and I think luckily for me, I didn't really shy away, you know, especially in a lot of Singaporeans, you would feel probably first few days, you don't want to say something upsetting. But then, and I remember one time HR said, you're doing the things that they've never been done. Like it's not being done this way. I said, you've been doing the same thing the way it's been done today. That's why you are where you are. And that's why I'm here. Yeah, because it point. cannot, yeah, because it cannot continue the same way you've been doing because it doesn't make sense anymore. Right. Yeah, so yeah, that's the data part. And uh, I think for me, maybe the biggest achievement was the mentality shift. I mean, that's what I'm really thinking was the biggest achievement that they saw for themselves that assumption based and I know better than, so it's either assumptions about technology or it's like, I know better what the SME wants. Yeah, It's these two types of assumptions. Neither is correct usually. Uh, because the problem is when you're too much in sales and in SME market, you think you know better what SME needs, but they don't. Said so, no, I know they need this. How do you know? Did you ask them? I'm not saying just take their feedback as your Bible and execute, but it's a data point. And then see what's the trend, see what the other competitors are doing. Like 
again, it's, I don't haven't read it anywhere. It's pretty common sense, but it's not. So yeah, and, the, and another point after that mentality shift, and we had to show them that this is. So we would suggest something. We would do them and say, "You see the result? Okay, now see for yourself." Yeah. So we had to do a lot of trainings, of retrainings of salespeople as well, because their pitching was. Like I've seen them pitch, we would shadow, I would go out and shadow our salespeople who are selling SME services like website or advertising. Unbelievable. It was disastrous at the beginning. Like there is no coherency or consistency. Right. You go, you can't even speak proper English or Chinese. You mix up, you don't have documents and it's all like a bit like a bazaar potato sell. Hey, yeah, well, you know, yeah, we have that website thing and then the Google thing. You're talking about yellow pages. You're not talking about a garage startup. Yeah, so we had to revamp everything, train them properly, tell them the kind of words they have to use. Even commented on like how the way you have to dress up and stuff like this. You're talking special to a lot of older generation SMEs who are like all older. I mean, small details like this make a lot of difference. They, they don't. They don't. They would have had that down already. You would think, but they didn't. And uh, apparently, sales manager was very high level, so she didn't. She thought she had it all worked out or figured out. And she knew all the buzzwords, Google AdWords, I don't know, Google Insights on this and that. But then turned out she wasn't. Uh, so we spent, I mean, again, it wasn't about finger pointing or accusing, but we spent a lot of time just training the team. The good thing is I got their buying initially not that easily, but once I got the buying, they saw that I'm not there after their jobs and stuff. We were there to help the company. So that's the most important takeaway that I realized, and now when I talk, I talk about it. I said, well, you have to get them to understand that it's not about you or me, it's about these companies, in this case, Survivor. If you put that, then they are no longer looking at details of what you're doing. They know that whatever you do is in that same interest. It's not for yourself. Right. And you're not getting paid a lot for it. And I made sure that they know. I'm just here trying to really save this and really take it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of these uh, things are point in the direction that Everyone is in a way talking about digital transformation. Is not really about digital or systems. It's a lot about the, the mindset. It's the mindset. So, what about what are some of the other cultural challenges that that you've encountered? I guess uh, in the mix of a public listed company, uh, a quite old company with a lot of people who have been there all their lives, and that in uh, maybe also a culture that was through the former company that worked that you just got familiar with, but it's still. Uh, not really a first nature to you. What are some of these challenges that you came up against? Culturally, challenges were both age and race. <laughs> mm. So I still think it's not a company that has at least all the minorities of even Singapore represented. It's predominantly Singaporean Chinese. All the sea levels are Singaporean Chinese. Yes. All of them are, let's say, above 60. All of them have been in company for at least 10 years. And previously, they had a very successful track record in their respective whatevers. Right. So that made them seem like, if you like, experts or someone who is very well, who's supposed to know really well what they are doing. So me, I come in, uh, I was younger than all of them, probably their kids' age. My background was very diverse. That didn't help. Uh, so when they checked, I'm pretty white. I'm pretty broad. So I've done this, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that across geographies. So instilling in them immediately a trust of this guy has known and done the same thing many years. I didn't have that because neither is the same country nor is the same industry. So it's yeah. even less. So I didn't check in the same point they would have had because they would have go, gone mostly the same. Like I've done this, this, this is the same thing in the same type of industry or same industry. So I was, my credentials didn't click. 
and then I'm much younger, and then I'm a white guy. And that white guy, last time I was faced with that, before Singapore, was in Africa, in Mozambique. There it's all black, or mostly black, and it's 10% white, and when you're white, it doesn't matter where you come from, you're white. I had similar, uh, it's not as sweeping kind of a generalization, but I'm white, or Angmo, what they call, and, uh, and so coming and telling them how to do things, that was the third point. Like, I come in, I'm new, so I don't have trust because of my credentials. I'm white, I'm young, and then I'm telling them what should be done very differently from what they've done. Yeah. So all of these are points against me. So I have to tell, like, and I could not be very politically correct and very like accommodating and likable in many cases because my job by its definition was not. I was supposed to be confrontational, I was supposed to question, and I was supposed to suggest a better way of doing things. So you had to change things. I had to change things. A lot of those execs had big egos, didn't go well. Again, I didn't have any single point which was in my favor. Everything was against actually. <laughs> so good thing was that the CEO knew about this and his daughter was working for him as well. So his daughter and one other guy who eventually became a good friend of mine, who was one of the director's sons, both of them were working for him. So he said since the beginning, why don't you all work together, which I already thought of doing. He said, you have to take these two guys with you, at least two initial meetings. They are going to sort of, their presence is going to give that confidence that you are not just some rebel. So yeah, and then eventually both of them became like my close team. I mean, we're like three of us and eventually I would basically delegate it to either of the two to do certain things. Right. Yeah, so, but without them initially, I wouldn't, I, they wouldn't like take me seriously, obviously. They would say, who's this guy? But the fact that the two of them, and everyone knew that this one is the daughter of CEO, that one is the son of the, you know, that other director. So that helped. That So these were the cultural changes. Like, again, both of these two people were very open, well-educated, so they had no problem. And they knew that I'm there not because I'm well-paid or because I have some huge career prospect, which I didn't. I mean, Yellow Pages <laughs> at the time, sorry, guys, but Yellow Pages is not Google or like, I don't know, uh, yeah. some sort of a company. So they knew that I'm there, why I'm there. And they had vested interest because both of their parents were pretty much shareholders. So they had all the interest to help me. And yeah, it was win-win for all of us. So three of us became like a close team and we basically did what we did. But yeah, but I mean, a lot of cultural challenges. I talk about it, just a whole different section. At the beginning, when you came in, was there an overall vision for how the company understood itself that you could use to make decisions? Mm. So just to give you an idea, when I came, apparently I think there were one or two tentatives of bringing someone. I, I met at least one person who was still around who was brought in to do something about the business turnaround, but some, and I don't know the detail. What I know is that he didn't work out and he was very jaded. Yeah. So that same day when, he's an Australian person, and when that same day I was being presented to VPs and the C-levels, he was also brought in and the CEO told me that he did something and he, I mean, just the cynicism of his first few sentences was lean out for me. I'm like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be talking to him that much because <laughs> I feel it's not gonna be very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> But to answer your question, so when I first came for my first ever meeting with the CEO that was organized, I was basically, what I did was I did the homework of seeing what's the landscape, huh? what the Yellow Pages is doing. Yes. And then there's two types of Yellow Pages. There's the one that's like in Canada that's really advanced and they are the 
biggest advertising agency in Canada. And then there are the kind of zombie versions, which are like more in this part of the world. So when I started talking to CEO, it was clear that there is no clear sense of neither the vision, nor the direction, nor anything. It was pretty much like, let's do more of the same, or maybe let's just put in a YouTube video, or let's maybe have a different website. This is the kind of thinking. So CEO very quickly went down to business. He said, so what do you think is the vision? It's not because he wanted to test mine and his and see which one. I feel he there wasn't much of a vision. And he was, I mean, he was humble and open about it. I said, look, I'm not really digital. I've been trying this, brought in some people, didn't work out, need someone to do it. Right. I said, I've never done. He looked at my CV, said, hey, you have enough background, big, like diverse background that I think you should have a shot. Oh, we haven't succeeded. Maybe you will. But I think you have a better shot than us. <laughs> so he didn't have, I said, look, I think my vision should be to go in the same direction as Yellow Pages Canada, become more relevant, bring in all these things that SMEs would love to do, customer acquisition in terms of advertising or putting their online presence, maybe create websites for them or do, I don't know, logistics or distribution of their service. Make you can have a marketplace in Yellow Pages where you distribute SME kind of products or services. But right. that will be the direction, you know, make it relevant. When you started in 50s, 60s, that's what you did. You helped SMEs grow. Now, ask yourself from a first principle point, What's the thing you can do to make SMEs grow today? Now you have social media, very important channel. So maybe you offer that. Yeah. Maybe you come up with a marketplace. Maybe you help them with their financial pains because that's another pain point. Maybe you give them a payment system or POS machine or something. So there were all these questions. I mean, I helped them think maybe from that point of view of a beginning or first principle or fundamental. What is that you, we can do to be relevant? And that's the direction that we took in digital business unit. I mean, that's the beginning of every decision we took. We went back, said, does that make sense? Does SME need this or that or that? So the North Star was always helping SMEs grow. Yeah, but but doing it in a relevant manner. Because print was very relevant in, let's say, 50s or 60s. But because there was no internet, no nothing. The only way you could grow as an SME is you put up advertising once a year in some big magazine. And then everyone would go and read because that's where everyone would take their information. But guess what? Now there's multiple online channels. There is online and offline you can mix. There's a lot more other things that didn't exist. Payment systems were not that kind of, well, they didn't even exist in many form at the time. Now there are. That's a big pain point. How can we address that? Right. So it's demand and problem, demand addressing and problem solving what we did for SMEs. So when you come into a situation like this and everything needs to be done, and of course there's not enough time in a day to even get started, how do you decide what to do first? So we did a bit of what's called an impact analysis, right? So we analyzed the kind of impact that each of these actions would potentially have. We prioritized it based on impact. So we came up, for example, top three pain points of SMEs are not top things, top wish list. You know, the what's called the ice cream and the or and then aspirin analogy, right? Yeah. Aspirin is need to have, ice cream is good to have. So yeah. we always had to do an 80-20. I made, so in our digital business unit, so I didn't make anyone do anything except two things. Everyone had to read the Richard Cox 80-20 and One Minute Manager. Everyone had to read this, two books. Because One Minute Manager, enriched version of it, is what we used internally for our management. You know, so... And then the other thing was we had to prioritize everything. Like you said, we don't have time, we don't have resource. We had very limited budget. So we had to basically figure out what makes sense and impact analysis is what we did basically. 
here's what we'll do. What's the impact on that? Does it is it worth doing this, or should we do this? And that's where we would get our top lists. Yeah. Okay. In hindsight, obviously, every company is different. Every transformation is different. Is there anything that you would say, okay, if anybody is starting out on a transformation path today, here's a couple of things to look out for, some pitfalls to avoid? Uh, yes. One, um, I would say just, I think the very, very first thing that they need to do, there's two things. One is to go back to the basics or the fundamentals of what the company's vision is or solidify that vision first because everything is going to stem from there. Right. Every decision has to come from there or based on whatever that is in that vision. That's what we did. That was my like railing cry every time we would talk or we'd have like a meeting with managers and outsiders would say, this is where we want to be. That's our direction. So to go there, we need this, 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 this. Right. Because that does a few things, right? One, you bring everyone on the same page on, or where you are. You rally your forces, so to speak. I know it's a military sort of a term, but that's basically you rally everyone saying you're here. All of you are here and that's where you want to be there. So what do we have to do to go there? And the second thing is, so questioning a lot, like does this product make sense? Like once you have the vision, go more granular. What are the products? Do they make sense in terms of that vision? Does the culture make sense in terms of the vision? Does the departments or units make in terms of, I mean, you have to basically validate all of the stuff against your vision. Yes. And then you go to next level, next level. And then the other thing is you have to make sure and probably spend a lot of time getting that mentality shift because usually when they're in the situation when they need to turn around, there is a lot of ego, a lot of assumptions, a lot of stagnation, a lot of sort of probably we did this before successful and maybe something is wrong now, but there needs to be a mindset shift, as you said. There has to be an understanding that we can no longer do what we've done. I think that's the two main things. Fundamentals, questioning and figuring out your vision. And second is understand that it's no longer we have done this, we have done that. Let's think together what's the best way to do this. That's really just question. A lot of it is not rocket science. A lot of it just requires a bit of checking around, looking at competitors, looking at market and talking to our customers. When you do these two things, I think everything else will fall into place. But you have to, like, vision first, fundamentals as second part of the vision, if you like, and then make sure everyone has the same mentality. Because if they don't buy into your... And I had that, right? We had initially the board would say, why don't you get all the C-levels to use this tool or that tool? Or I said, look, if they don't buy into this vision or they don't understand that they're doing something in a way that shouldn't be done, no amount of me technologically empowering them is going to help. It's, and it's the same for SMEs by extension. If they don't realize that this is the new way of doing things, I can give them all the tools. They won't use it. It's that shift that first has to have the mind shift, and then you can build a process around it inside, and then you can give them the tools to execute the process. Yeah. If you don't have that, then no amount of you, you can have the greatest vision, but then nothing is going to have get done. <laughs> or the other one, if you have all these tools and stuff, but there is no vision, everyone is doing everything on the right and left, and you spend a lot of time and resource, and it's completely inefficient. But so I think these two are like uh, both necessary and and complementary to each other. But right. yeah, yeah, super interesting backstory around that. And then after Yellow Pages, so now you're at Nexmo? So yeah, I'm at Nexmo. Again, the reason is the same rationale. I was actually sort of contacted when I was still at Yellow Pages that, 
hey, you know, I don't even know till today how they found me, but they wanted me to join this. Well, at the time, Nexmo was, I think, like 15 people in Singapore. Now it's around more like 60. So I was contacted to join in as one of the heads of BizDev for the region. And I didn't know anything about the communication industry. So I was like, well, SMS, OTP, how impactful can that be? So my metric has always been what's the impact, whether it's on a business or an end customer. Right. But I was curious enough because I realized that communication can play a big role in how businesses happen or do their things. And I was right. It plays a huge role. Uh, you would think a boring thing like SMS, what could it do? Right. But it does a lot of stuff. It impacts businesses in such ways I never imagined. So right. what are some of those ways? Now, for example, so there's a few touch points, right? That usually it's in a product or in marketing or outreach that you use communication. If you are a bank, as an example, communication is an essential component of what they do because every transaction has to get some sort of communication around it before, for example, you're sending money, something before, something after. Right. If that communication breaks down, the product breaks down. Like, for example, if you're sending money on your DBS and you don't get a confirmation, you're like, is it money sent? And let's assume for now you cannot really go in a dashboard and check. You have no idea because you expect to get a communication. So people Absolutely. so people have this what's called immediacy, expectation of immediacy in terms of communication, whether that's sending a Twitter or getting a payment notification. And that's why it's critical for a lot of products because many, so that expectation in end users is there. So whatever the product I have, I have to have the interaction with that product, and that usually means in form of some sort of communication, push notification, SMS, I don't know, alert, something like that. And when there isn't, bad things happen, and users complain, call, and then they come to us, say, what the hell is happening? We're going down. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like, for example, we're servicing a company that is servicing in this term. It's a loyalty company, but they use our capabilities in their product. DHL originally uses them. So every time there's one number that doesn't get an SMS, there's a huge hulala that goes to that company that comes to us saying, what's happening in Indonesia? Some roaming number didn't happen. So this guy's delivery, I don't know, $300 maybe didn't happen. Yeah. And then we have to go check what happened. One SMS makes a lot of difference. And it's not just banks. Yeah, it's logistics, entertainment. Companies like Grab, for example. So next my servicing Grab's customer centers, mm -hmm. like it's all on cloud. So when you call and complain, there is an emergency. Yeah? There's a button that they call and talk to you. That's done by next one yeah. or any similar, right? So the idea is that, again, if you click this and nothing happens, you're screwed. If it's an emergency button, then your product is going to have issues because they can sue you. So we had cases where literally like cases of judicial procedures and stuff happened because some SMS or some voice message didn't go through or somehow got lost. So yeah, yeah, I didn't know that either, right? Now I can have a lot of this. Yeah, it's it's critical because outside of the core product, every way of communicating, I mean, I jokingly say like, when I go and try to talk to a new customer or company or whatever, I say, are you a business? Yes. It's all leading questions. Do you have customers? Yes. Do you communicate with them? They look at me. By the time they look at me like suspiciously, what are you talking about? They're like, yeah, of course we do. I said, so we can help them, help you. We can value it. Right. Like, what do you mean? I said, yeah, we have this, 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 this. SMS, email, voice, chat, video. Anything else we're missing? Uh, YouTube video, uh, not YouTube as in maybe Twitter. We don't have Twitter, but everything else there is. So you're communicating. This provides communication capabilities. 
No, it's it's I like you. I couldn't imagine, but it's super critical for a lot of businesses, especially financial insurance, like all these BFSI banking, financial institutions, insurance, all this. They are logistics. Think of any time where you need some sort of a communication, whether it's logistics, e-commerce, bank, all the most critical things in your life have a lot of communication. If you right. now, if you pay attention to it, you're like, oh yeah, I have to get a re-. like every time I pay my Amex, there is a notification. If you haven't done it, call this. If I don't get it, I'll panic. I'm like, someone used my card. Yeah. Or when I see an expense I didn't think of or I don't have an SMS, I'm like, what's happening? Someone is abusing my card, right? But that's the thing. Now, like, you zoom out, like, oh, shit, I actually pay attention at these things. And I take it for granted because this is the immediacy economy or whatever they, they call it. We all take it for granted. We all take it for granted, right? And then I were you, if I someone like me told you this, I would like, oh, and suddenly you start paying attention. Yeah, there is an alert there, alert there, there. For you, it's like normal, like air, right? You don't take it, but when you pay attention, there's a lot of criticality. So what are some of the key trends and developments in, in that area? Are there uh, any new products that there is convergence. you're excited about? No, no. So there's contextual communication as a term that's coming now. It's basically because a lot of these communication channels, voice, text, chat, chat is WeChat, WhatsApp, fiber, anything, right? Yeah. Or video, they've all been siloed. The trend is converging everything and making it contextual. So, for example, the same grab, right? They can take information from the call customer center. Who is the caller? What's the last time they called? What's the issue? And next time you reach out to them on their mobile application, they can say, oh, okay, yeah, we see that you did this and that. Right. So this till few last few years wasn't possible because of technologically, it wasn't possible. Now... There are a few companies that are providing kind of a like API functionality or capabilities which allow you to contextually see which are, which are the touch points of the same customer. You have a telephone number that can show you Viber, WhatsApp, email, SMS, voice. Suddenly you can have all these touch points in your database. Yeah. And you can see accordingly what's the data, what's the complaint for each of the touch points. So it's just very helpful. That's the convergence that's happening. And then, yeah, just... Building, uh, so APIing, basically providing uh, APIs or infrastructure blocks for all of these communications, that's the other trend. Uh, they call it API economy, right? Everyone is now, you have a service, you're very good at it, convert it into API, give it to someone else who can use your infrastructure, your services. Right. Yeah, so the, the ecosystem play. Not, not everybody has to rebuild everything, right? Correct. Not everyone has to you're rebuild. That's exactly... Yeah, correct. That's exactly the reason why this is now becoming more and more trendy as well. And communication APIs are by far probably the most impactful one. I mean, I saw recently a company called, I heard of them, it's called Anapi. It's insurance APIs. Yeah. So it's not even like communication, whatever, insurance. That's, to me, it's the next level. Insurance so far, to me, I imagine paper claims. This is an API you can build because insurance has been one thing missing in a lot of these marketplaces and e-commerce companies because to get an insurance company to partner up with you or give you a service, it's very manual and analog. And suddenly, hey, voila, there is an API, you just don't even care to talk to AIA or AXA, you just use that capability to put in your thing and suddenly all your customers have access to all these insurance companies without you making a single move and talking to anyone. I mean, disclaimer, I don't have anything with them. It's just an interesting concept that I thought also APIing this industry could be very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And besides this, you also uh, advise and, and give talks about topics like artificial intelligence, right. blockchain. Tell me a little bit more about 
that yeah, so, got, got you interested in that. Yeah, it's the same rationale, right? So I like to help or grow something, right? It's a business or I help people to grow their own businesses. So in that same logic, I like to talk about some of my experiences or expertise or whatever you want to call it that I accumulated. So I've been advising in AI since 2011, since end of 2011. And blockchain is more recent addition uh, since 2017. So, I mean, I think this way, right? Once I have specific types of experience that I think is worth sharing, then I like to share about it. Right. And most of my speeches and uh, etc. there, I mean, I try to think from the other person's or audience's perspective, what would be interesting for them because I would put myself in their shoes. So I like to talk about, let's say, trends, myths, uh, ways of doing things, methodologies, etc. for AI, blockchain, edge computing, data mining, etc. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is well, AI and blockchain in particular because one, they have common things, data. One lives on data, one produces a lot of data. And two, because both of these are changing and disrupting a lot of legacy in systems and industries, both of them. In some cases together, I have a speech that's blockchain plus AI and the industries, it disrupt, they disrupt. So it's very important because again, like if I were the audience, I would love to know all of this information. Right. There's so much info in the internet. You don't know uh, where to find what, what's more relevant, what's less, but events are more in your face and you can always go and talk to people. And if you have someone who talks to you, sort of helps you foster to know about something, I would appreciate, and I do appreciate when I go and see someone talking. So I try to do the same. Also, yeah, so talk a lot. Last year, I spent, I think, 70, 80% of my speeches were about blockchain because it's just the new, the most recent. And and blockchain, I mean, again, tech and business, there's huge implications. Yes. I'm not even going to talk about the trading and the, and the cryptocurrency. It's just from a business perspective, there's huge implications of what blockchain can or is doing already and from technological perspective. And I feel there aren't enough sane voices who are talking about it in the region. Unfortunately, there's, I mean, this year is better, but last year and the one, especially in 2017, a lot more of either narcissistic or very self-centered kind of um, talks were around because they are trying to fundraise or promoting their projects. So I felt, and I still think there is a gap in terms of just educating and raising awareness about the trend, the issues, the current technologies in blockchain or AI. And yeah, I always try to fill in this kind of gaps, see what's there. I mean, I might, might not be very accurate, but I feel like there is a gap. I go and focus on that gap. Yeah. So for example, within blockchain, I mean, the last job you were focused on helping SMEs grow. If I talk to SMEs today, they're very unsure and unsecure about what can this do for us? Is this something we can use? What kind of applications do you actually see in the real world that are either possible already today or would be possible in one or two years from now that they should seriously think about? In terms of blockchain? Yeah. So whether you know it or no, there is already a lot of blockchain applications deployed, not on a pilot level, but on a serious level. A lot of it is interbanking settlements. Mm -hmm. Uh, the reason why we don't know about it, which is one of the main things, or we don't have awareness about it, is because a lot of it is very B2B and it's financial sector or supply chain mostly. These two right. are the most mature and where you have actual applications working. It's all under the hood. Yeah, they're all under the hood because they are not on your iPhone. I mean, the good metric is, is it on your iPhone, right? So the mainstream and kind of uh, things outside of CryptoKitty is probably no one would know about. 
But there is this. Uh, for SMEs, it depends. We've seen projects, like, for example, there's a good project called Omisigo. It's in Thailand. Omisigo is a blockchain company. Good. Build on blockchain. No one knows about it, or many people don't, because they don't advertise it. Um, it's a payment system in Thailand, like your, I don't know, FavePay or your GrabPay. Very used. Um, for SMEs, it's less obvious because SME pain points, a lot of it has to do with either customer acquisition or it has to do with payment systems. So maybe that could be something for SMEs right. or it has to be with distribution or logistics of their services. So if you're, there's a marketplace, so there's many marketplaces built on blockchain. Unfortunately, most of them are not scalable. Problem with the technology like blockchain is that the current frameworks you have outside of a few, let's say, IBM, like Hyperledger suit of blockchain projects and whatever, they are not as scalable. So bringing it to an SME could make sense if the SME doesn't have any high turnover, very like stringent technological requirements of a marketplace. But if you want a mainstream or scaled version, most of them still don't qualify. It's only few that let's say companies like IBM or Infosys or R3 have, and it's very B2B and it's in finance. And I think it'll take maybe another few years to come up with some end user iPhone type of applications. But by that time, it should be probably pretty mature. It's like analogy would be AWS, right? It started first. It wasn't, you know, it started initially as Amazon was using it itself. Then they figure, right. oh, okay, let's just spin it out. Everyone would need this. At the time, it wasn't that scalable. And when they first spun out, it wasn't that scalable either. And people wouldn't go, well, I don't know, maybe some did, but mostly wouldn't hear, oh, I'm using AWS. My technology is great. Yeah. Right? People don't go say, I'm using iOS, so buy my application, right? <laughs> it's a technology at the end of the day, right? right? People don't buy you because you have that or this or that technology. Absolutely. So blockchain is at that stage where, let's say, AWS was or iOS was first two years of after they became more mainstream. So it's going to mature and... At the end, it's going to be like a checkbox. Yeah, I want a blockchain version of my marketplace or I don't want. It's right. going to be that, right? So I don't know yet if there is so many applications for SMEs. Right now, probably payments will be the most mature, like payment systems, escrow systems. I don't know any like end user, like uh, Steemit. Steemit is uh, is not an SME solution. Steemit is like TechCrunch or Medium. You can publish articles, the content publishing uh, company. Yeah. Also, they don't advertise they are blockchain, but they are. Steemit is S-T-E-E-M-I-T. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a few that you might know as an end customer, but all, all of them have one thing in common. They don't advertise that they are blockchain. You will eventually find out. Right. And for SMEs, again, probably payment will be the... the low-hanging fruit right now. Give it a few more years, maybe you'll have some nice scalable marketplaces maybe on blockchain, maybe. Um, But the application, no, sorry, maybe just to complete the answer. The application is that if you tap on technology, uh, benefits of that specific tech, which is blockchain, every tech has a specific benefit and that's why anyone would use it, right? AWS was maybe more frictionless at the time or it's the fact that it spares you having an on-premise server, right? It's all in the cloud. And it has all these tools and bells and whistles that you click, 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 and then you can have a website hosted on it. Yes. Right? So blockchain has similar, right? Decentralization, tokenization, and let's say immutability, right? These three main things. If you need a marketplace, for example, you're an SME, you want a marketplace where your track record is going to be staying there and no one is going to break or hack or change it, maybe a marketplace has to have that immutability. Maybe you can use blockchain for that. Mm. Or if you want the tokenization or unitization of your 
either decision-making or value distribution in a system, that could make sense as well. Let's say, um, I don't know, what's a good example? Let's say let's say you have Facebook kind of a system. Um, think of token as a, like a profile, an individual profile, right? right? Like people can add things in your profile. You can add stuff on your profile. I can add a reference to your profile. And then people can exchange and say, here's my profile, right? So if you need that kind of profilization or tokenization in some ways, you can also use blockchain. So if and when, I mean, my point is if and when you need a tech or a product that needs to tap on these three main benefits of blockchain, then you can implement blockchain. Yeah. Your question could be how much is it compared to, how does that compare to existing ones that do the same functionality? In most cases, it might not well compare as well yet. Give it two years, I think you will compare. Okay. Because immutability, you can have it without any blockchain. It's been like, look at marketplaces like Amazon. They don't need any blockchain. They're super scalable. They can do all the immutability you want, if they want to. So, well, they they could also technically edit all the records they want if they want. Correct. Super centralized, right? So, so technology is not there yet to have Apple to Apple comparison with existing ones of the, even about their main benefits. It's not there yet. But it's it's gonna it's gonna mature, and that's the only. I mean, I'm pragmatic. It's only to apply when really you need this few characteristics of that tech, and it's already mature enough for you to apply and get your stuff done using that tech. That's when but, it will be. Maybe not now. I think in a few years. Yeah, and on the other side, uh, we talk about artificial intelligence, or maybe let's talk specifically about machine learning. Applications seem to be getting quite mature and actually rolled out with many corporations globally, but yeah. also there around Singapore, but also in the general smaller business segment, we don't really see so many applications yet being in use. Uh, what do you think is bottlenecking the really widespread usage of, of machine learning algorithms? So in Asia, I think, so again, there is a bit of similarity with blockchain. A lot of it is very B2B. Yeah. The first ones that started using machine learning were investment funds. What they were doing was they would have one machine learning algorithm, give it the stock portfolio of well, one company and have it trained on that company and figure out all, all sort of noise or non-linearity and eventually speed back, say this is the top five stocks in your portfolio, go more into them. And then the human analyst would double check, make sure the financials are correct and then put more money into it, uh, into it right? So machine learning has been widely adopted by now in a lot of B2B related businesses, whether that's data generation, analysis, or prescription. The reason you might not, again, be so much aware of it is one, because again, it's very B2B. Number two, a lot of it happens very seamlessly. So you might not even know. Like a lot of Google Translate is machine learned, basically. Like you might, I mean, you probably have a guess that it's like this, a lot of people want. But machine learning doesn't, I mean, so you don't see a flag saying machine learning used here. Like everything from CD to like, for example, my iPhone, I'm sure yours too, says every week says, here's your week week's usage of things. And that's where you can probably use next week or stuff. A lot of this is using machine learning. A lot of it is in your iPhone as well. But No, no, no buts. Just you don't know about it because it's not flagged out as such. So there is a lot of usage. If you ask me in Asia, Specific Asian cases, very now trendy and sexy, is the chatbots or virtual assistants, which most of them, I think, are pretty much failures. or robot advisors, if you go on a more business level of that. Uh, A lot of them are not anywhere in terms of anything. Your question is also, what's the trend or what's the 
why anyone would use it. At least in more traditional industries, what we see is that it's not really that much used yet. I mean, end consumer products, okay, yeah, sure. You might talk about the chatbot, the robo-advisor, Siri, and all of that, uh, yeah. absolutely. But then when I look at, for example, you know, agriculture, mining, chemical, the kind of industries that we also deal in, uh, more it's, commodities. It's, it's not really there yet. I think I won't know all of, I, I don't know a lot about these industries, but a lot of, for example, what I know is there is weather prediction applications and stuff for specific parts where you have to see, for example, when is the rainfall coming, what's the dry season, etc. A lot of this weather prediction happens using machine learning as well. Right. So they take the data, they look at precedents or they, they look at what there was before and then they predict and that data goes down to, let's say, farmers, etc. They know if they should, let's say, sow this type of crop or that type of crop based on the rainfall that's expected. So there is that, but maybe not as mainstream because the whole industry is not very technologized, if you like. Yeah. It's because I think it, I would think about it. It's because mostly of that. Any place where there is more data. So ML has been, I don't know, historically. I mean, there is five sort of camps, right? But the most known one now it's what they call a connectionist camp which is trying to use ideas from philosophy, neuroscience, etc., and basically reverse engineer the brain. You know, you probably heard, all of you heard about deep neural networks. Neural networks, the whole neuron thing is simulating brain. Right. So that's the connectionist guys, and then Jeffrey Hinton is the main guy in that. So the resurgence of, you also, I think you touched on that, resurgence of ML or AI is basically last 15, 20 years. And the reason is because technologically now the processing can happen and there is a lot more data. That's the reason it just is possible now. A lot of the methodologies that were used are still like back propagation and stuff. This is all from 1980s, 70s. Yeah. So it's just the old, same old, but with bigger data and more processing power. That's why it's now coming up. And anything now that has data, unlike blockchain, blockchain is still uh, probably five years six years behind AI in terms of maturity. But AI, anywhere where you can accumulate data in any one technologically feasible manner, there is AI or ML. I, I will generalize like that. The reason you don't see a lot in maybe chemicals or whatever is probably it's not very technologized. The ones that are, I'm sure there is already, at least some level of machine learning. AI, not necessarily, but machine learning, definitely. So for companies who are thinking about adopting some sort of New technology is not necessarily very proven yet. Also think about maybe SMEs. What would be your advice how to start engaging and how to actually find a use case and how to get started on that path of adopting a new technology? I think for them it's really about, again, about their business, right? I, I never think technology is the first angle or lenses you have to look at anything. You have to see, at least in my view, what's the problem or what's the need you're trying to reach or meet or what's the problem you're going to solve. And then you look at what's the available tools and technologies that can help you solve it the most efficiently, not just help you solve, but help you solve efficiently and, and sustainably, let's say, for the next few years. Right. Um, that's the step two. And then usually if the thing with SMEs is unless you're talking about SMEs that accumulate or generate a lot of data, ML doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of them, at least not at that stage, until and when they are a bit more grown up, if you like. Because if you like, and let's take some illustrative example, let's say you have some marketplace or you're an Alibaba shop, kind of a small shop, and you're selling some beauty products or you have a nail salon, it's very common in Singapore. Yeah. 
you don't need ML. You don't, you probably need an Excel sheet uh, or Google spreadsheet. <laughs> you don't need so much. I mean, ML comes in when you have a lot of data, you have to both describe and prescribe, right? And you need something to help you because you can physically not do it. But by definition, SMEs usually don't have so much. And the ones that do, let's say Grab or Gojek, um, I won't call them an SME, but let's say, <laughs> let's say a bigger startups, these guys already use it. So once you reach a certain amount of data where let's say two, three analysts are unable to see, or it requires them to spend a lot of time, or they can see patterns because data is more convoluted or complex, then maybe you are talking about when you can think of ML. But always, my thinking is always think of ML or AI or any of this as like, it's a tool, right? You're trying to dig the ground with a shovel. And then at one point you hit, I don't know, stone or something, you can no longer go. Okay, you bring a drill. Okay, right. that's when you bring the drill, right? You don't bring the drill since the beginning because it doesn't make sense for you. So I, I, it should be like this. Like it's only if and when you need this, you already have so much data, you clearly need an algorithm to take over then. Uh, for more, most SMEs, I would say that's a few years from their SME existence. Or if they stay SMEs, which a lot of them do, probably never. They don't need if you are a Gojek, well, there's few types of SMEs or startups, right? It's either you're a Grab Gojek type or you're an SME type or you're failing after three years. Right. The failure ones, probably, again, by definition, they will probably never would need. The SME ones, probably also a big chance they would never really need. It's only the Gojek Grab types that would eventually need. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a bit crude analogy, but that's what it is. And the MNCs, of course, they just almost by definition have a lot of data, if nothing else, their own data. That's where they need it. Okay. Yeah. How do you see the, the Singapore ecosystem in relation to uh, the technologies that we just talked about in terms of the kind of companies that you see coming up here that are using uh, machine learning and other technologies? Mm -hmm. Do you feel the ecosystem is fairly leading and mature? Or what is your uh, perception? My, so let's separate AI and blockchain. Blockchain, there has been a lot of Hype, a lot of noise. Singapore was, you probably know this, was last two years one of the epicenters of blockchain development. Yes. So outside of US, there's few places in the world that are, so let's say, high density in terms of blockchain startups, projects, investors. Singapore was one of them. Um, so by sheer amount of all this activity, there is some sort of maturity now that's coming along, etc. Um, if you ask me to point out some really great projects, I'll say maybe two, three maximum out of probably a few hundred that I might know of. Yeah. For AI, interestingly, and I didn't realize it at the time, like a few years ago when I was thinking about it, AI, multinationals, again, because most of them are not from here, they brought it with them or they use it. But awareness or startups and stuff, it's relatively new. I would say it's almost as new as blockchain. Yeah. There are a few startups, but again, unfortunately, what's passing here for an AI and ML is little more than a recommendation engine. So let's say Christina uh, buys this book, then Sebastian liked that same book and she bought that book. So then Christina should consider that book. While sure, you can argue there's some ML in there, but it's mostly, I mean, it's, you don't need ML, it's common sense. If two, if you like the same book and you bought this, she didn't buy this, then maybe you can consider that as well. I made a few companies. We got engaged for one quantitative trader who wanted basically algorithmize, if you like, their, their trading their trading systems. 
And I met a few vendors, AI supposedly leading vendors, and you talk to them and all they talk is how they're going to sort the data, clean it, sort it, and then do a little bit of recommendation engine or like analysis. And then just, I mean, to me, it's like, I don't, I don't know. It's not really ML. It's, so, and these are some vendors you think. So mostly I think it's not there. In some ways, I would say it's even less mature than blockchain <laughs> in terms of uh, the thing is because blockchain has something that AI doesn't. Blockchain has a commercial association with it that AI doesn't. Yeah. That lures a lot of people. More people are aware of blockchain because of that cryptocurrency or the commercial potential gains and stuff. AI, on the other hand, if you think about it, AI startups, if it's especially pure play AI or some sort of a deep tech, they do a lot of research and they come with some big algorithms. There's no usual exit strategies acquisition. And they, it's not the usual startup possible. Okay, let's get profitable cash and then someone will acquire us or will IPO or whatever. It's usually a few years down the road and hoping some big MNC in whatever the industry you're catering to is going to acquire you. Yeah. That's not exactly a very promising prospect. It's even less promising than the usual one. If you don't get acquired, maybe you need another five years to even break even. That is if you even get funding. But Singapore government is very much pushing towards smart cities, smart tech, smart this, smart that. So they have a, and I think two years ago they created AI Singapore. Um, it's a body, government body that's, I mean, that's the one way, right? You want to have that technology mature and stuff. You create some government body, put some resource in it, ask them to do some activities, mostly educational at the beginning. Yeah. Then some projects, then get involved with MNCs, and that's what they are doing now. They are doing some projects, some education, now getting involved with MNCs. Same for blockchain exists as well. Actually, not just blockchain. There is fintech. There's few fintechs. A lot of them are doing little more than blockchain, but there's a few analogous uh, organizations like AI Singapore for blockchain. So I don't know, it's maturity wise. I have to compare, right? To answer your question, blockchain, uh, maybe two years behind US market, which is where a lot of this started and it's a lot more mature there. AI is, I don't know, five, six years behind. All the top AI guys with the exception of maybe two sit in the US or Canada. The one or two are Andrew Young, who is who left Baidu, the guy who was behind Google Brain and stuff. Yeah. And there's Kai Fu Li, who also like is in China. So there's maybe two in China. Everyone else is in either University of Toronto or Facebook or Google. I mean, literally. These are like University of Toronto is the guy who invented deep neural networks, and he's also at Google. So it's either Google and Facebook or some Canadian university. Or two guys in China, literally. That's the top five. Yeah, so you don't have anyone even close to that in Southeast Asia, not India, not anywhere else. Everyone is on a very amateurish level. I'll put it that way. It's a bit sweeping generalization, but it's where they give it a few years, they'll get there. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for your time today. You have no more questions? No. Okay, thanks. This was very informative. Hopefully, not just for me, I heard my voice, but also for you. <laughs> I, I, I think so. <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lost in Transformation with our host Sebastian from Ming Labs. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe to our channel and leave us a review on iTunes. Join us next time for another episode of our podcast.